This is the Behind the Badge podcast with me, Daniel Freeman. And me, James Roberts. Each episode we'll be chatting Oxford United with the names of yesteryear. Whether it be a former player, manager or chairman, our aim will be to listen to their story. Behind the Badge is an unofficial podcast that digs deep into the highs and lows of Oxford United's history. We hope you enjoy it. Well, welcome back to the second series of the Behind the Badge podcast, and it's my delight to introduce our first guest, and it's the former groundsman of Oxford United, Mick Moore, a position that he had for, for 17 years. Mick, thank you for uh, for joining us on, on this podcast. Uh, it's lovely to be here. Can I just stop you before you go any further? For most of my time at the Manor, I was also the stadium manager. Oh, OK, thank you. Okay, well, we can ask you about um, various things that went wrong within the stadium as well, then. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Mick, uh, tell us how it all started, then, uh, with your uh, positions at Oxford United. Well, I was the uh, head groundsman at Morris Motors uh, Social and Athletic Club in Cowley, and uh, I was an avid Oxford United fan, and I have been... Uh, since they changed their name from Headington to Oxford, it's that long ago. Um, so uh, we had some bad weather one, one winter and, and it snowed heavily. And, and I managed to pack some snow down on a pitch at Morris's. And I got in touch with Jim and I knew they were struggling for training. And I said, would you like to come and have a go on my pitch? And he came up and he was extremely impressed. So that was a, you know, that was the start of the ball rolling. Uh, on occasions when the weather was really bad and they couldn't get on any grass anywhere, I used to let him come up to the to Morris's ground at the barracks or the barracks ground it was called in those days, along Holloway, uh, and use a piece of not the pitches but use some areas of grass where at least they could they could do a little bit of training, you know. So so I, I, I gradually got to know Jim and. Um, um, what happened was Les Bateman was the groundsman at um, Oxford United, and he'd been there for many, many, many years. And he was he was getting on in in years, and I, I believe he was even walking with a stick. So, although he had an assistant with in, in as uh, David Wedge, who who I inherited, um, he the, the pitch was 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 not the best. I have to say, some of it possibly because of all the football that had been played on it, uh, all the training and the cup games. But anyway, Jim made it clear that um, he wanted a new groundsman. So um, uh, we got in t- I got in touch with, or my, my wife got in touch with Jim Hunt. Uh, she knew Jim. And Jim spoke to uh, Jim Smith. And so I went to see Jim Smith one afternoon and I spent the whole of one afternoon in his little office uh, detailing my responsibilities, what he wanted, what I wanted. And uh, he offered me a good package. And I said, well, I'm going to have to go and discuss it with my wife. And uh, I'll give you a ring and let you know my uh, my answer. So as I was going out the door, he, uh, he'd offered me uh, private health insurance, um, the pension scheme, which I was already in a pension scheme, but the Football League pension scheme was a better one in as much as uh, the one I was in, I was paying 4% and my employers were paying 8 And Oxford United were paying, well, the Football League was 5 and the club 10 So that was a good thing. And uh, he also often be, as I say, free health insurance. And then as I came, was walking out the door and he said, I'll write into your contract 
you'll have a minimum of 5% increase every year. So I said, thank you very much. So I, I, I discussed it with my wife wrong in the next day, and I said, yes, I would like to accept your offer, providing you, you, you relay all this in front of me to Jim Hunt so he can write it down and it's all signed and sealed. And that's what happened. So I, I, I left Morris's and I joined Oxford United in April, uh, April 85. And um, my very first game was Shrewsbury versus Shrewsbury. Which uh, you, the old, older people will remember David Langan scoring the only goal, which put us, which gave, gave us promotion. So, uh, I mean, this was a wonderful start for me. And of course, in the dressing room afterwards, it was champagne and the world's press was there and uh, it was lovely. Anyway, uh, there was only two more games that season. Um, the next game, I think we drew. I think it was Barnsley. And then the last game, uh, or was it the last game maybe we, we, we played Barnsley? Anyway, we won. We, we, and it gave us a title. So we won the league. And, of course, Champagne rolled out the dressing room again. I remember John Murray, the reporter of Oxford United, saying, it's not always like this, mate. You know? <laughs> anyway, that, 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 that's what happened. And, uh, uh, you know, it was one of the best moves I ever made. I had a really happy time at Oxford United. But um, I soon realised that you, you have to stand up for yourself because you know, footballers and particularly managers are very strong characters and they'll, they'll walk all over you if you, if you don't stand your, your corner. And one of the first things I needed to do was to spray the pitch because it was covered in weeds. And you need to do that uh, and give yourself a few weeks afterwards before you can reseed. So I spoke to Jim and he said, yeah, OK, do it on Monday. He said, we haven't got a game till Saturday. So there was a firm spraying the ground. I went into one of the offices and Ken Fish came in and uh, it was quite a sort of a well-spoken man and with a deep voice. And he said, and uh, what are you doing out there? I said, we're spraying it with the weak again. He said, um, do you know that uh, a groundsman did this, one of the football league groundsmen did this, and a player got infected? And he had to have his leg amputated. Did you know that? I said, no, I didn't, actually. He said, well, you've got to remember, well, now you're here. You're not working for, for a, a sports ground for, for factory workers. This is a professional football club. So I said, uh, Jim, uh, Ken, I said, uh, I think a factory worker losing his leg is just as important as a football losing his leg. And I turned around and walked out. And I, well, I told him that Jim had uh, agreed with me. But, you know, that was a good awakening that, you know, <laughs> you've got to look after yourself. So anyway, um, of course, what happened then was in the close season, Jim Smith left and went to Queen's Park Rangers. And while he was clearing his office out, I went and I said, well, you're good. When you've got me here, now you're going. And I said, partly the reason he coming was, was, you know, I, 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 I wanted to work with you. And he said, no, you'll be all right. You'll be all right. He said, just make sure the manager is the boss. You're, the manager's your boss. And don't take any notice of anybody in the office, he said. And you'll be okay. You'll be okay. And he had promised me, actually, one of the things he said was, I, I want you to be one of the team. You come over in the mornings and have a cup of tea with the player before they go out training. When we go away, you come on the coach. Not, not overnight stops, but... Yeah, that sort of thing. So I was a bit very disappointed when he left. But anyway, Dean Morris took over and uh, 
you know, we know what happened then. Mick, um, sorry, I just wanted to jump in there. It's an amazing insight into what it was like because you've already spoken about going in the dressing room to join the celebrations, going on the team coach. And from sort of the stories I've heard from people like John, former Oxford Mail reporters, that really was what it was like in those days, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a, it was a friendly play. Football's changed so much, isn't it? And, and of course, the staff at Oxford United in those days were... Were, were very small, you know, and the backroom staff at the Jim's uh, team would be Ken Fish, the physio. He also did the kit. Then you'd, you'd have Ray Graydon and, and Jim Smith, the manager and assistant manager. I think Foggy was doing the reserves. And uh, you'd probably get a chief scout and, and somebody looked after the youth team. And that was, that was it. There was no, they didn't have any training around anyone. They used to beg and borrow and you know, a lot of the time at that time they were going to Brazenose College Ground down the Abingdon Road. But um, so uh, even the office staff was, was was minimal. So because it was in such a tight area as well, everybody knew one another, and you saw play, the players every single day. Which is obviously now with all I don't think any clubs have run like that now, obviously, but uh, um, which helped a, a bond, you know. You rightly corrected me, Mick, about obviously your role as stadium manager as well. When did that come into effect? Well, uh, what happened, Jim said to me, he said, um, don't think this is a dead end job because there's a job as a stadium manager that you can do. But he said, you've got to sort the pitch out first. That's the priority. But after that, he said, I see a job for you as stadium manager. And Jim was one of these people that if he walked around the ground and he saw, he thought there was, there should be a rubbish bin somewhere. He would say he was that involved with the club. You, you know, I mean, it, it wasn't just that he was manager. He, he was over all the club, you know. That, that was the way Jim was. Um, probably through his upbringing, the way he went when I believe he was manager at Boston or something, he used to paint the stands and do everything else, didn't he? So I suppose that stayed with him. But um, I think it was probably three, three years afterwards, Pat McGeough became the managing director. And he said to me, you know, uh, we'd like to offer you the job as stadium manager. And so I accepted. And, and so then I was in charge of, you know, the cleanliness and refreshment parts, the toilets and the upkeep of the ground, the, the testing of the barriers each year, and you know, which was a pain in the neck. But uh, where they bring these hydraulic sort of jack things and push these barriers to a certain extent to, to a certain, so many kilonewtons they've got to withstand. And of course, some of the terracing would crack, and they'd have to get a fair amount of weld plates underneath. And oh dear! <laughs> but I mean, it was old, an old crumbling stadium, as you well know. Um, drains used to block up. We had squirrels up all the each floodlight point had squirrels up there and chewing wires, and <laughs> it was amazing the things that that happened really. It was a very changing time as well, wasn't it, within football? Because obviously Hillsborough came along not too long after and the Taylor report and the the, um, the fencing had to come down. Was there any time like within the stadium at that stage that you thought to yourself, oh, we're in trouble here or something was close to happening that you thought, oh, we, you know, we, we, we got away with that one at all? Well, I, I, no, I don't think so. I think we 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 did our best to make sure everything was was safe, obviously. Um, clean. Uh, one of the things that resulted from the Bradford fire 
um, was the fact that we had a, a, a sectional stand uh, on the uh, Osler Road side, uh, if you remember, it's uh, towards the Cuckoo Lane end. Um, and I had to go in there and bolt steps on a regular basis and clear out any litter which used to fall th- through through this these sections, with, which it did. And so that's how a fire started at, at Bradford. Nobody had cleaned it out for years. So I had to sign a piece of paper to say I'd done it every couple of months. And there was also another small area which was directly in front of the manager's office. It was only about six rows of seats. And that was even worse because to get under there to get the rubbish out, you know, was, was not very easy, I can assure you. So, uh, but no, I don't, I don't think, I mean, there were things like we, we had, um, I remember once that some drains blocked and the water gushed down. Uh, it flooded the tunnel area and I had to put some, some boards across the tunnel area for players to get from the dressing rooms to the pitch. <laughs> Can you imagine that? And then we, we did something to stop that. And then what it did, it, it flooded when we had a storm, it flooded the away dugout. So <laughs> the away dugout had a foot of water. <laughs> so, you know, there was, there was, there was loads of things that happened like that. But, um, you know, you had to go on. But I don't, I don't think there was anything safety-wise that we were ever really concerned with up there. In terms of the way you had to sort of prepare the pitch and things like that, you obviously mentioned coming in just before promotion to the top division. Did anything change in terms of the standards that you had to meet? Was Did you kind of know from your point of view that, oh, wow, we're, we're a top division club when it sort of went up? Well... Uh, yeah, yes, I suppose so. But I mean, I've always wanted to produce the best pitch I could possibly produce, no matter where it was. But um, obviously, you take a little bit more care on the preparation of this, you know, getting the lines straight, nice and white, the mower lines straight, all this sort of thing, obviously. But um, no, most of the centre circle we dug up because well, there wasn't much there, really. And uh, and obviously, massive areas of the goalmouth receded. Um, but the problem with the pitch was that it was never laid as a football pitch. Originally, I believe it was a rose garden. Uh, Mattox Roses had it. And then I think the local people, they, they, they used to play cricket in the middle of it and that sort of thing. So it was never built as a football pitch. And there was not a drain in the pitch anywhere, which I would think there were very, very few pitches that, were, that didn't have any drainage. And, of course, we had the slope, and the only one it, way it drained was the water running from one end to the other. <laughs> so um, uh, in latter years, we had that drained, and I never looked back then. But um, that, that was different. Uh, also, watering, the, it was just travelling sprinklers that we had that used to take five or six hours to get from one end of the pitch to the other, which was, uh, you know, you see all the automatic watering, which we did, we got in the end, but... In those days, that that did that 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 wasn't there. So, um, I think the biggest worry was the amount of football because you had a big reserve league, a combination they call it the football combination, where a, a lot of the, the the big clubs, all the big London clubs, had reserve teams in it, and and uh, in fact they were popular because. Very often you'd have a, a really well-known footballer that coming back from injury and they'd be playing in the reserves, you see. Um, then you had uh, youth cup games, you had a load of finals at the end of the season and 
training wise that got in the habit of training on the pitch and I used to write down every hour they did training and I can tell you in the early days you were talking probably a hundred hours a season training without without the other counts. So it's a bit different now, isn't it? <laughs> so it is a different world, like you say. And obviously, you know, Oxford fans of a of a certain generation will have amazing memories of, of those years when you came in. You've obviously already spoke about how close you were to some of to well, to the team in general really and, and, and Jim Smith when he was briefly there, but in terms of that that team, that the glory years, were there any sort of players that you sort of grew particularly close to? Uh, well, David Langer was the big one, really, of that team. I got to know David really, really well. Uh, he didn't like to be called David. He always wanted to be called Frank. He always had to call him Frank. But he was a very funny man. I mean, he was a wonderful footballer. I mean, as a right back, he was before his time, wasn't he? You know, the overlapping fullback. But... Um, uh, he used to have nicknames for players. Every player had a nickname. And uh, I think Gary Briggs was Rambo. Uh, John Truitt was uh, Lionel Richie because he had black curly hair. Um, we had a chap playing at, at the time, uh, um, or at a club anyway, called John Dreyer. Uh, and I think if, 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 if an Irishman pronounces it, he pronounces it Dreyer. So he got the name of Tumble. <laughs> and uh, um, he, he, uh, even my assistant, David Wedge, he used to come and have a cup of tea with me uh, when we were having that tea before he went training. And he, he'd say to David, uh, when did you go last night then? And he'd, oh, I went into the supporters club with my mum and dad and my brothers. And how many pints did you have? Uh, four. Four. So he did this two or three times, and it was the same answer. So he said, I've got a name for you, Four Points. And he, he was calling Four Points for, forevermore. So that, that was Langley. He, he was ever such a, you know, he, he, he could salt, but he was a lovely chap, you know. And uh, so we even went on holiday with him the next year to Portugal with him and his fiance. And uh, so I got to know him very, very well, very well. Um, uh, I got on well with all the others, really, but there was, I mean, again, they were quite a, quite a drinking squad, really, you know, I mean, I think several of them got, got done drink driving, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it was more of a sort of a Wimbledon spirit, really, I think, you know, with regards to the bonding of the players and going out together and that sort of thing, which I don't think happens quite very much now, does it, which is a shame, but I used to enjoy all that. You know, I mean, I I got to the point uh, a, a few years after, I, well, probably three or four years after I was there, I landed up running the the uh, Christmas party for the players, which was fancy dress, and uh, and then I was organising the next night a party for the staff, and so I was completely and utterly absorbed in the club in every single way, you know. So. Um, it was, it was, the, 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 the milk cup was, I mean, that was special, wasn't it? But um, uh, we had an occasion after the milk cup. Um, there's a, a gentleman called Aziz, who has had Indian restaurants around Oxford. And in those days, he had one in Botley. And I used to go down there with my wife and with Lang and his 
fiance and Mick Brown and his wife, and we used to have meals. Anyway, he he uh, had a word with Malcolm Shotton and he said, I want you to come to my restaurant in Botley. He said, I should shut the restaurant and I want you to come. Uh, and and uh, Mick's coming and and, uh, and and Mick Brown is coming. And uh, so we all went and uh, it was just my wife and Mick's wife went, of the, of the ladies. And uh, we had a superb curry and a good night. I think Rosie went into the toilet and came out with toilet paper wrapped around him like an Indian waiter. <laughs> um, but uh, one thing that happened was um, Alan Judge had worn his light grey jacket where they had light grey suits in the World Cup final. And he, he wore his light grey jacket. And uh, it was on the back of his chair. And when he, he slipped out to the toilet, a couple of the lads got some curry that hadn't been eaten and poured it into one of the pockets. <laughs> and uh, it was, I, I only found out recently, actually, that um, he, he was in digs at the time. And when he took it home, he put it into the garage because it smelt so much. And uh, he forgot about it. And the landlady, after about four days, had a go at him and said, what do you think you're doing with this jacket? And apparently she cleared the curry out. And so she, I think she took it to the cleaners about three times for, to get rid of the stains and the smell. But I, I believe he still got it for that. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, quite funny. Did you find yourself becoming a bit of a confidant for, for some of the players that then, uh, Mick, in terms of the fact that obviously you were involved with those parties and those situations and there probably was things that the ma- they didn't want getting back to the to the management or was it the management was, was as involved as the players? Oh, no, I, I, yeah, I suppose so. But it, it was just uh, if a player was dropped, then the manager was useless. You know, he doesn't know what he's doing, and and they can never see any way. You know, and, and they, they obviously had salt players if they weren't playing. But um, no, I didn't. I wasn't a confidant. I think. I mean, I heard things that were going on, obviously, and and obviously, you know, I didn't spread them anywhere else. And and luckily for me, I wrote to David Wedge again. It was my assistant. He heard it all as well because it was usually in my little office at the end of London Road. And um, he was as good as gold as well. Nothing ever came out of that, which is obviously vitally important, isn't it? So. You're a strong character, Mick. I've known of you for, for a long, long time when I worked at the club towards the end of your time there. And you don't, you don't take any ball. No. What happened if any of the opposition managers um, had an issue with anything around the stadium or the pitch? Shall we say? Well, did did you have any incidents like that? Um, I had a, a couple of incidents where players went out. It only just started this warm down business afterwards, and I had some players go out. Uh, I forget which team it was now, uh, kicking around uh, in in a goal mouth. And uh, of course, I've got forkers on the pitch trying to put the divots back. And uh, so I, I, I've had rows with people like that. And, and I've also tried when the weather's really bad to get the opposition to try to keep at the goalmate before the game. And, and to be honest, one or two, you know, they're, they're pretty good. And they would say, well, we need to practice crosses, which I accept, but not just willy nilly smashing balls in from the penalty spot. You know? So, no, no, I didn't, I didn't, I don't remember sort of falling out with, with any uh, opposing managers at all, really. I, my, my argument was more with our managers, I think, over the years. 
wanted to hammer the pitch and I didn't want them to. <laughs> How did that develop then? Because I, I guess in your 17 years, I'm doing the maths in my head now, but I think there's about sort of six or seven, six or seven full-time managers at that in that time. Um, you said about how close you were with Jim straight away, but were there any that maybe it took a little bit longer to uh, to see eye to eye with? Um, uh, well, towards the end, yes. I mean, uh, I, I didn't really get on all that well with Mac- Malcolm Shot, to be honest. Uh, or probably Mark Wright. <laughs> the worst was Ian Atkin, by far. He was a horrible man. I detested him. But... Uh, <laughs> David Kemp, I had a bit of up in the day with David once. He was uh, a certain player, I, I won't say who it is. He whispered in my ear on the Saturday after a game, uh, we're on the pitch tomorrow, mate, 10 o'clock. I said, thanks very much. So I drove up there about quarter past 10, and he was out there with um, Joe Kinnear and all the players. So I stormed onto the pitch, and what on earth do you think you're doing? We're having a training session. I said, who says you are? He said, I do. I said, that's not your pitch, it's my pitch. He said, you ask me. Oh, 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 oh I, I, sorry, I, I didn't realise. I said, how do you know if I want them first thing this morning to put some fertiliser down or something like that? Oh, I didn't know. Oh, he was like a little boy, you know. And he, he, he said, well, can we carry on? I said, I can be half an hour. Oh, all right, he said. And that was it. But, but no, no, um, uh, that was sort of towards the latter end, the, the, the time that really was the most pleasing for me, I suppose, was um, Morris Evans. Obviously, that was the glory day sort of thing. And when Morris left, then, um, then we got uh, Mark Lawrence, which was just, I mean, Mark, I was starstruck with Mark Croker, you know, I mean, what a player and everything. He won everything and the and uh, uh, we we were told, uh, I was told not to go home early on, on the Friday because at quarter past five, the new manager was going to land in the helicopter with Kevin Maxwell. So we we lined up. There wasn't many of us there. And we lined up and we landed. And oh, when I saw it, I couldn't believe it. Honestly, I really couldn't believe it. And uh, as he was introduced, this is Jack Caisley's escape. This is... So and so, this is Ken Fish, this is Jim Hunt, this is Mick Moore, he's our groundsman. I've heard all about you, Mick. What? We, we got inside, we, got, we went in, had champagne in the boardroom, um, very small room, and uh, he, he, he was going around talking to, to people, obviously, and he, he, he came to me and he said, uh, Jim Hunt said, this is Mick Moore. Then yeah, I've heard all about you. I said, what have you heard about me? He said, I'll tell you afterwards. He said, no problem. Then Ken Fish in a loud voice said, uh, the trouble with us and why we're in, in the position we are in the league is because we're not training on the pitch enough. It's a sloping pitch and we need to train on it more. So uh, Jim, in fairness, Jim Hunt said, I don't think you'd agree with that, Mick, would you? I said, no, I wouldn't. Anyway, Mark said... Uh, to Ray Graydon, um, can I have a word with you, please? It was Jim's assistant, you see. Mark Morris's assistant, I should say, and Jim's. And uh, he took him in the next room and uh, he fired him there and there straight away. And uh, he, what had happened was John Aldridge and Ray Hayden had, got, had gone to Liverpool. And so he had had a good chat with 
John Aldridge, and Ray. Obviously, I mentioned me. And uh, Ray wasn't liked by a lot of the players, I have to say. So I'm assuming that took their word and that was that. So uh, he had, I suppose, Brian Horton lined up and was a mate of his. He played with him at Brighton. And um, so that was that. But um, when I went, he pulled me later on, walked down the tunnel and he said, uh, take no notice of what he said. He said, all I should want training wise, he said, is on a Friday, set pieces after we come back from training. I said, you'll be a friend for life if that's the case, Mark. He said, no, that's, so I said, okay, so that's fine. I said, but what have you heard about me? Oh, he said, Billy Whitehurst. I said, oh, yeah, well, to go back, when Billy signed for Oxford United, it, we had a reserve going on. And uh, Bobby McDonald had played in the reserves. And Bobby and myself were in the supporters club and Billy came in. And they travelled all day and discussed terms with Morris and signed. So we got talking to Billy. And uh, anyway, we landed up going to a pub in Marston and then back to my house, the three of us. And we carried on a few drinks and uh, Billy started falling asleep on the settee. And uh, he got up in, in like a daze and we said, what do you want? And he got into my kitchen, which I'd only just had spent about £12,000 on having it all refitted. And uh, he was going around there, I said, do you want the toilet set through there? And he was pulling doors. And one of the pieces of the kitchen was a, a piece underneath the, the microwave, which was a false piece with two knobs on, which was we pulled out and we used to put trays underneath. Well, he pulled this and it came off, you see. It was only on springs. And Bobby said, no, you're smashing his kitchen up. Anyway, he went, he went to the toilet it came out and Bob, by the back outside, Bobby said, what do you think you're doing? And Billy took a swing at him. <laughs> but Bobby said, oh, you've hit me. But I don't think he did, because I think if Billy had hit him, he wouldn't have woken up for a week. Anyway, that, that, that was the story. So what happened was, uh, Mark said, uh, Billy Whitehurst, he said, uh, it's, uh, I've heard about, uh, he, he smashed the kitchen up. He said, uh, it's all around Liverpool. They're about the groundsman of Oxford United. And I said, well, he didn't actually. I said, and, and he, he's been, been a big mate of mine. I said, we get on the house on fire. He said, well, best leave it like that. He said, it's a nice story. So, but that's what it was about. <laughs> so, but the times I've been really old here, so funny. So, so funny. And such a, I mean, a lot of people didn't like him and, and he didn't, he didn't really come off for Oxford United, did he? You know, didn't, we wasn't a prolific score or anything, but, um, when he was uh, in Diggs, he, he, he introduced me to his landlord. He says, this is my landlord, he said. This was the first night. This is my landlord, he said. And uh, we had a drink and his landlord went home and we went off to a club and uh, had a few drinks. And the next, uh, early the next morning, very, very, very early, we could hear Billy banging on the door. <laughs> my wife went down and said, what's the matter? I've been kicked out. You've been kicked out. Yeah, I've been kicked Why? I don't know. I don't know. Well, you better come in. So I said, you must know why. No, I don't, I don't know why. I, I couldn't tell you. I had no idea. So anyway, a couple of days later, he said, I found out. I found out how I got kicked out. I said, what was that then? He said, well, he said, that, that landlord, he, he, he brought my, I left my coat there and he brought my, my coat to the manor. I said, and I asked him and he said, well, what happened, Billy? He said, uh, during the, 
sort of halfway through the night, you got up and went to the toilet. But when you came back, you got the rooms mixed up. And instead of going in your room, you came in our room. And you got in between me and my wife and we couldn't move you. <laughs> he said in the end, my wife said, you've got to get him out. He's going. And so that was the reason. <laughs> yeah, that was Billy Dear Oh Dear. And then there was another time when he... Um, it was a Saturday, he'd been playing, then he went up to the dogs, because he was mad on dogs, and uh, went up to the Greyhounds, and then he was driving home, and uh, uh, through Woodstock, I think, and uh, he, he picked up a, a hitchhiker. Anyway, he hit a bend and turned the car over. So his head went through the windscreen, he's, he's got a massive nose built, but he split this nose right open, he pulled himself together and he managed to get out of the car and the other chap got out of the car and he said, are you all right? And the chap said, yes. He said, all right, I'm off. So he, he ran along the road and every time he saw a car, he, he jumped into a ditch. Anyway, he got to the next village and he was on the phone or a bank to ring me to go and pick him up. And the police came and caught him. And he said, I gave that chap a lift. He said, you know what they said? They, well, they must have said, which way did he go? And instead of telling the wrong way, they told the right way. He said, I'll just give him a lift. <laughs> so anyway, that was that happened. That, and he, he, oh, my goodness. Uh, the week after, he, uh, well, it, he had staples put into his nose to keep it together. And by the Saturday, they were oozing out. And he played that day. He played against Liverpool. If you read Alan Hansen's book, it starts and finishes about Billy Whitehurst. And now that was the first, Oxford United was the first uh, fixture they looked for in the new season because they dreaded playing against him. And they said that they read about this car crash and they thought, great, he wouldn't play. And he said, when we got to the manor and there he was in the tunnel with his, with all his staple suits in it. <laughs> I mean, uh, he looked frightening. I mean, he was frightening on the pitch anyway. But uh, and I've, I've recently read um, uh, Niall Quinn's book, and uh, he he mentions Oxford United, and uh, he's not the the bravest footballer he claims. And he said, uh, uh, I never used to play, play against Oxford United. He said they had a, a couple of centre backs called uh, Briggs and Shotton. He said they were like the Jesse James gang. He said. But worse than that was the centre-forward, Billy Whitehurst. He said, and for the first corner, he said, I went to mark him, and he said, who's ever marking me is going to get smashed. So he said, I looked round and I said to David, you take him, I'll go over. <laughs> it's, it's, it's sort of football, really, you know. But <laughs> he, he's known as the, the hardest man in football. I mean, you're talking about Vinnie Jones, but uh, a lot of people have Billy down as that. So... <laughs> Mark Lawrenson's an interesting one, though, because you said that you had a uh, he knew a little bit about you before, but uh, like you say, a massive name at that time, but somebody who, who I gather that uh, you have some sort of stories to tell about. Well, yeah, he, he, he was absolutely. I mean, the first after the first game, uh, the next day I was on the pitch and he jumped over the wall and asked my opinion about. I think we lost or something. And he said, what did you make of last night? You know, and you think, Christ, what do you want to know from me for? You know, that, that was the way Mark operated. Anyway, um, what happened was he bought a house at Coombe, a big house at Coombe, and uh, a big garden with a big lawn. And the lawn was 
not the best. And he asked me to go and have a look at it. So I went over and it was what we call ridge and furrow. It was, it wasn't level, you know, there was dips. And, and so he said, what, what could be, what could be done? So I said, well, you either dig it all up, get it dig, dug up, or you get soil and fill in the hollows and reseed. Then that would probably be the easiest. So he said, could you organize that for me? I said, well, I could, I can get somebody who will do it for you. I said, and if you like, I'll order the, the grass seed. So he said, okay. So I ordered the grass seed. Well, on a particular Thursday, the grass seed arrived. So I, it was in the afternoon. I rang him and I said, the seed's coming, come in now. Would you like me to bring it over to Coombe to your house? And he said, oh, that'd be lovely. So off I went, took the, took the seed, you know, to this wonderful house. And, um, he said, uh, do you fancy a beer? So I said, I, I could do, yeah. So he said, well, the next village is, um, there's a pub in the next village, uh, which is owned by the chapel owns Bogarts, which was the club in Oxford that all the players used to use in St. Clements, a chap called Steve Winston. So we, I said, yeah, fine. So I got in my car and drove him. We parked the car and went in and had a drink with Steve. And uh, so a little while after, another pint. I said, no, I can't, Mark, I, was, uh, I can't, Steve, because I, I'm, um, I'm driving. So he said, um, well, I'm going into Bogart's later to, to cash up and, and, and so forth. He said, I could take you back. I could take you home. I said, yeah, but what, what am I going to do with my car? So Mark said, well, I can, I can get that, drive it in, and, and Vanessa, my partner, can drive my car so I can get back. So I said, oh, okay. I'll have a pint now. So that was it. So we had a few pints until, I suppose, half 11, 12 o'clock. And uh, right, we're off now to Beaugard. Well, Steve Winston owned a big white Rolls Royce. So there I am, driving back to Oxford with, with the, one of the best footballers in the world in the front. And I'm sat in the back of a Rolls Royce. You know, this doesn't happen to many groundsmen, does it? So we got to the club. He said to the barman, give them what they want, no charge. So we, we sat there for a couple of hours talking and uh, eventually went on the shorts and uh, eventually Steve locked the club. He took, my, took me home and I thought, oh, if only the neighbours could see me now, you know. Anyway, uh, I go to work the next morning. My wife dropped me off and uh, sometime later, a YTS boy came along. Here's your keys, Mick. The car's outside. Oh, great, great, lovely. Anyway, lunchtime. I always used to go in the club on a Friday and meet a pal of mine who I used to work with and have egg and chips. So uh, I was in the club and the players came back from training and one or two of them came in. And then in comes Brian Horton. He looked at me and he said, you? I said, what's the matter? He said, you're a nightmare. I said, what have I done now? He said, what have you done? He said... Mark's come in, he's still pissed, and we've had to take him home. <laughs> oh, so he shouldn't have gone on the shorts, gin and tonic. What does he want to do that for us? It's his own fault. <laughs> yeah, so I've I done poor old Mark in, haven't I? <laughs> yeah. He went to Peterborough then, and uh, he rang me up uh, after he'd been there a little while, and he wanted me to go there as his grainsman. And I said, no, I'm not going. I'm an Oxford person, that's that, you know. But uh, anyway, Mark was, I I love Mark, I really did. 
And I got on well with Brian as well. Brian was a bit of a disciplinarian. He, 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 you know, he, he frightened you when he looked at those, he had those piercing eyes. And uh, he was always very, very worried about players sort of drinking. And there was a bit of a drinking culture, you can't deny it. And, and he, it used to worry him to death. And uh, one, one Christmas, I, I, as I said, I'd organised a Christmas party, fancy dress and so forth. And uh, we used to go to the Moat House, which is now Jewelry's Inn, have something to eat, come back to Bogart, have some adult entertainment. And obviously, the, you know, it was a private do. And then when that finished, about six o'clock, up by six, and we went our different ways into town or whatever. So uh, Brian knew I was, I was doing this. So um, anyway, everything went off very well as far as I was concerned. And uh, I, I saw him uh, the next morning and he said, how did it go? All right? No trouble? No, no, no. I said, I'm fine. I said, good do. Oh, good. So that evening, we were at the Cavalier and Marston, which was the staff party. So I was there, obviously, with my wife and all the other staff. And Brian was there with his wife and Mossy. And he came up to me. He said, I thought you said there was no trouble. I said, no, no. Have you read the Oxen Mail? I said, what? Have you read the Oxen Mail? I said, well, what's the matter? He said, it's in the Oxen Mail. I said, what's in the Oxen Mail? He said, there's a story saying... There was a there was a fancy dress party in Oxford last night that got a bit out of hand. Um, some bikes were thrown into the charwell from Morgan Bridge, and some cars that were parked in a, in a in a traffic jam had their their windscreen wipers bent or something. And the police are looking for a cowboy, Robin Hood, and a policeman dressed. Somebody dressed them, and I know who they are. He said. <laughs> I said. Honestly, bro, I didn't know anything about it. I said, I came out of there and I turned left. We went into St. Clement's. I was with Peter Hooker and I was with Kerry Evans, the New Zealand centre-half. So I said, I honestly didn't know anything about it, but whether he believed me, I don't know. But <laughs> that was the truth. <laughs> At what point did the um, sort of Christmas party uh, organising and the uh, that social side start to change, Mick? I know, obviously, you said, it, as you rightly said, it's very different right now. Was there a point in your time there where it started to uh, start to change? No, probably. I I would suggest it was when we left the manor. Uh, up until then, Steve Foster came on the scene. Brian got Steve Foster um, as captain, and uh, I think one Christmas, you know, he was the boss, Steve. You know. <laughs> Uh, we're having a Christmas party in London, so we had a coach full of drink and went down to Covent Garden, spent spent the sort of day there. But it wasn't anywhere near. I don't think anybody really enjoyed it, to be honest. But um, but I mean, in those days, you imagine Steve Foster coming and signing for Oxford United. Now, I'm not sure whether the club were paying the money or whether Steve was, but obviously the money came from Oxford United, and he lived in Brighton. And he insisted that he wasn't going to move. And so Steve had a chauffeur that used to bring him up and back to the manor. You imagine that in those days, you know, an Oxford United player having his own chauffeur. And they used to stay the night before a game. They used to stay in one of uh, one of Maxwell's houses um, in St Margaret's Road in North Oxford. They used to stay there so he didn't travel back 
he didn't have to travel up on the day of the game and put it that way. But um, again, another another big character. My goodness, yeah. <laughs> In fact, I remember once we we had some frost sheets that we used to have to pull on the ground to keep the frost out of the London Road end, and they were very heavy sheets. And I needed to. I don't know whether it was to pull them on or pull them off. I forget now, but. Um, uh, I said to Brian, can I have the YTS boys to give me a hand? Because I can't do it on my own. And he's, he, he, got, he got the first team players out there doing it. And Steve Foster said, oh, I've never done this, Mick. He said, well, what sort of a club's this? I said, welcome to Oxford United. We all muck in together here. <laughs> yeah, so, and they did. You know, I mean, that's what happened. Throughout your time, you must have come across Terry Gordon. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, there were, there were two stories there. One was um, we were playing Port Vale and the coach was in um, Beach Road, reversed up by the gates for the team to leave. And uh, Terry, I don't know whether one of the players, Port Vale players, put him up to it or whether he just thought of it himself. But um, the manager was John Rudge and he was still in, in, in the dressing room area, whether he was doing press or, or talking to Dennis Smith or whoever, I really don't know, or Brian Horton, I don't know. But um, uh, Terry decides to get into the team coach and sit in John Rudge's seat. So when John Rudge came back, he got on the coach and he said, what do you think you're doing in my seat? And he said, I'm sitting here, aren't I? He said, yeah, but it's my seat. He said, oh, don't lose your temper, Mr Fudge. And kept kept calling him Mr. Fudge. <laughs> and that was one occasion. The, the really funny one that I, I was witness to was we played Tottenham. And I was in the uh, some hospitality suite afterwards. And uh, so was Terry. And so was Gary Lineker. Gary was at the bar. And Terry had this big overcoat on, big sort of back type thing. And he walked up to... Uh, uh, to Gary, and uh, little did Gary know that under the coat, Terry had a whoopee cushion. So he goes up to Terry, and in his stuttering way, he was, Can 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 you tell, tell, tell me where the toy toilets are? And Gary said, It's that door there. So he gets to the door, and as he gets to the door, he lets this. And he turned around and said, too late, too late, and clutches his backside. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. Sadly, um, he's no longer with us, is he? We, uh, I, was, um, I went to his funeral a few months ago. Poor old Terry. But, uh, yeah. But there, there, there were so many stories, you know. I mean, I remember him... Uh, when Brian and Mossy were down the London Road Drive, he, he pulled some stunt there and they were throwing money at him as they were running down the down the drive. And, and there was a chap called Jimmy Carter who came to us for a short period of time. And Terry, I don't know what Terry did, but he frightened the living daylights out of him. And, and when he got home, he rang Mick Brown and said, I'm not coming ever back to that club while that maniac's up there. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's another one. I don't know if you were there. I'd heard of it, so I'd love to know if you were when um, Paul Tate arrived. And uh, I think uh, Mr. Tate took it a bit too far, didn't he? 
Well, um, yeah, I don't. You see, what happened was that Terry was very funny, but towards the end of his antics, uh, he started using a replica gun, which is not really very funny, is it? And the, the club were training up at um, Westminster College at uh, Botley, up on, on the, the hill there. And apparently next to it is a golf course. And uh, Terry pulled stunt, stunt with, with Paul Tate and pulled this gun and one thing and another. And, uh, and Paul ran off and he got hold of a, he snatched a club from one of the golfers and went back and, and, and smashed Terry's hand. Uh, Terry was in, uh, it might have broken a couple of bones, and Terry had to go to hospital, I'm pretty sure. So I think that that was the beginning of the end of, of, of Terry being quite quite so outrageous, shall we say. But yeah, that, 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 that certainly happened. No doubt about that at all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, we could, we couldn't do this uh, couldn't do this uh, podcast without talking about I think what you've called your proudest moment uh, at Oxford United. It was a season where the club didn't didn't win much, didn't win many games, didn't win anything, and in fact I think got relegated. But uh, ninety eight ninety nine, uh, you yeah. won, a, won an award, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they I think they still do it. They. Uh... Uh, they vote for the Grangeman of the Year on, uh, of each division, and um, the it goes on referees' reports. It goes, I think, the the, the uh, captain of each team is a, is given a form to to put down the best pitch they played on in the season, and it it can't be their own. And then when they get down to a final three, then you the Sports Turf Research Institute come and interview you, look at the ground, look at the state of the ground, ask you your, the, the way you maintain it, the machinery you have, how many games you have and all this, and then they decide who's the winner. So, uh, yes, I was fortunate to win that and I was very, very proud. And uh, it was good for David as well, my assistant, because, you know, he put a lot into it like I did, obviously. So we had a, had a check for £250, which I gave him half. And uh, a lovely cut glass, massive vase with it all inscribed and everything. But that was for Division One. But Division One then was like the, there was no championship. There was a Premier, and then it went down to Division One. So it was it was actually sort of like winning it, winning the championship. So I was proud to proud to get that. And the next year I got a certificate because I was in the top three. Obviously, I I didn't win it. I don't forget who did now, but. Um, it's nice that they do recon- you know, recognise the work that goes into it. But, of course, things change now. There's so many grounds that you have contractors do it and they're reinforced, aren't they? It's, it's so, so different now to when I did them. You know, it's so, so different. A lot better, obviously. I mean, they're, you know, they're not used as much, are they? And um, so you know, now they pull these lights on, so you've got grass growing out throughout the winter. And led to believe they, still, they do that up at the Kazam even. You know, you imagine the cost of that. So, but, um, yeah, that, that's something I wanted to touch on actually, because obviously, well, firstly, leaving the manor, which was obviously sort of hugely emotional for, for fans, and uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on what that what that was like, and also the move to the Kassam, which you know, in every other way, was less than uh, less than smooth. Yeah, it, it was. Um, 
I don't know what I could say. Uh, it had to happen, didn't it? You know, um, I'd previously been up to the ground when there was virtually nothing there, met some contractors. Uh, we talked to, to a firm that were intending to lay the pitch. And then, of course, that all fell down and everything stopped and, you know, they haven't got any money. And so when it was eventually resurrected again, I went up, met new people and uh, was explained what was what with the pitch and what they intended to do. And that if, if I wanted to, I could choose the grass seed that went on it, which I did. Um, and uh, it went from there. But it was, oh, it, it was... I mean, the manor had its quirks, didn't it? It had its faults, but it was such a wonderful little venue, particularly night games, wasn't it, with a crate on top of you and everything. And it was just, um, just, it was going to happen and and it happened. And and, I mean, uh, for the staff, certainly for the staff, I don't think anything was ever the same again. You know, you moved to a new stadium, you, it was a massive stadium, wasn't it, compared with the manor? Um, I had a wonderful facility there in one corner, the best facility. I had an office which I'd carpeted. Uh, I had my own shower. I mean, all that sort of thing. A workshop, a massive work. It was, it was fabulous, you know. And auto, really top of the line, automatic watering, everything like that. But um, uh, it was it was just cold. You didn't see anybody. And where we all used to mingle, you you didn't get that anymore. I mean, obviously. I'd go over to the office for some reason or another, you know, and, and see people. And uh, after after a, f- a few months, uh, all the staff had a letter saying, it's been noted that uh, you're straying into other areas. Can you please can, can you please stay in your designated work area? Well, that one. Out. So, you know, it was it was not very nice. But can I just come back to one story you you asked me about managers, and really, I don't know how I even forgot not to say this, but it was Brian Clough. Um, he came to the manor with Nottingham Forest, and uh, I used to sit right next to the dugout, away dugout. And uh, he was red in the face, so he had a tipple, I think. And uh, he, he got up and said to a policeman walking down the track, thank you for looking after the crowd, Constable, thank you very much. And then... He looked at me and he said, and what do you do, young man? I said, I'm the grandson, I look after the pitch. Thank you so much, he said. You've, for my, a pitch for my players, thank you very much. A few minutes later, he said, um, if you hear me calling a player a shithouse, don't worry, it's not one of your players, it's one of our players. I said, all right. And he said, I expect you want to know who it is, don't you? I said, well, yeah, go on then. He said, it's my son, and he is a shit coach. Yeah, that's what it is. So, anyway, unbeknown to me, the Oxenmail photographer on the other side of the ground had taken a picture of him talking to me, and he, he presented me with this the next week in a lovely black and white picture. Oh, sorry, God. So the next time Forrest came, right, I'm going to go up, Brian, and let him sign it. So, uh, I said to him, I got this picture. Would he sign it? We're late. We're late, he said, after the game. I said, oh, okay, no problem, no problem. Told him his tea was in there and all this, that and the other. So the game started and uh, he was shouting. And because I was looking to David, 
wedge and laughing. And, uh, and he looked at me and he said, uh, I don't want you sitting there. I said, well, this is my seat. I said, I'm not moving. He said, I want you to move. I said, I'm not moving. If you're not happy where you're sat, you, you move. And I said, well, I'm not moving. I can tell you that now. So he said, uh, you can hear everything I say. I said, I'll tell you what, they can hear everything you're saying over the other side of the ground. So anyway, we did a right one until you know, eight. And uh, anyway, that was that. So after the game, I thought, no, I'm, I'm not going to get a signature. Am I? So I put the picture under my arm and I eventually got into the supporters club. A bit later on, the YTS boy came in. He said, uh, Brian, um, Brian Clough wants you, Mick. says, yeah, he, he's asking for you. So I walked back. Picture under my arm. He said, uh, I thought you wanted uh, a signature or something. I said, Oh, yeah, 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 this. He said, uh, Bottled it, did you, young man? Bottled it, did you? I said, No, no, you bottled it, he said. I said, Well, anyway, what's your name? So he, he wrote down to Mick and all that, you know. And then uh, I said, uh, See, you were happy that day, weren't you? And he said, We were winning, we were winning. Of course, they were losing this game. So, so uh, anyway, he said, uh, I said, thank you very much, Mr. Clough. And he said, that's all right, but remember, young man, never bottle it. Never bottle it. And you know the way he talked. And then the third time he came, after Mr. Clough, and he went like that, and never spoke. So that was three times I met him, and he was different on all three occasions. And apparently, I think that's what he was with players as well. You know, they never could never really tie him down to what he was going to be like you know so anyway sorry I, I just wanted to get there because uh, you know that was that was I should never forget that and and also of course in 86 Bergie became manager of, of Man United didn't he and the first game was at the Manor on my pitch and we beat them 2-0 and I got a lovely picture of me again next to the way dugout and him sort of buying me with the world's press laid on the track taking pictures of yeah so something a bit special <laughs> what's special Mick the man and luck I was lucky enough to, to have a good few years watching Oxford there and then lucky enough still to work for the club for a period when towards the end of your time uh, at the, then at the Kassam quite quite simply it was different there's some people at the club now still there who were then you know lovely people, but there were some peop- other people there that were employed by the management at the time that just made things really, really difficult. And it should have been a really celebratory time, shouldn't it, going to that new stadium? But it just, just didn't feel that way, did it? Well, it, I mean, it, it's, he, he installed somebody there to run the club for him and run the hotel as well, uh, a, a, a woman. And, and she she was... Uh, she was. She could be quite nasty, and uh, I think she was probably the one that sent this letter about going into offices and so forth and so on. But um, it was quite funny because when when I got there, I was issued with a with a booklet on how to behave and how not to behave. It was a booklet that he'd had printed for for his hotel, right? And on one page, I wasn't allowed to wear nail varnish. <laughs> How about that then? It was just a booklet you give it to everybody. I mean, but when 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 he came to the manor, I mean, we had been paid for two months, so he was to a certain extent a salvation. So we got our money back, didn't we? And we started to be paid. But um, 
uh, at the end of one season, I said, right, Mr. Kazam, I need to send the, the mower's away to be, to be regrained and serviced. So I sent one away and I said, it's ready. But I said, they need the money. So he said, uh, OK, he said, uh, I'll, I'll write a check. And uh, anyway, a week later, he said, I've done that. He said, you'll be getting it back. But he said it was £500. I said, oh, that's not cheap. It's not cheap. I mean, it's got to be done properly, you know. And he said, uh, I, don't, I can't afford that really. Anyway, he said, I've paid it. I said, well, that's good. Because now, I said, I can send the other one. The other one? What have we got two? I said, there's two of us. Well, you don't use that mower until we have a pre-season friend. You leave that other mower in the, in the garage and you don't use it. And you will not send that until I have a pre-season friendly and get some. Money. Yeah, and that's why I have to do. So, but um, yeah, and, and when we were leaving the the uh, the mountain, uh, I said to him, "Oh, he said to me, are you coming with us?" And I said, "Well, I hope so. Why have I been going out choosing the grass seed or not?" And he said, "Oh, right, yeah, okay." So um, I said, "Let me say this, Mister Kazan, right away." I am not going to be able to be your stadium manager up there. It's far, far too big for me. You've got catering, you've got lifts, you've got massive car parks. I, I said, it's, it, I, I've got a new pitch to look after. So I said, I'm just telling you, I'm not going to be able to do that. All oh, right. So anyway, um, well, we'll draw you a contractor. So I eventually got a contract. Uh, I was 27% down on my wages. I had no health insurance. I had no provision for a pension to be paid. I had increased hours. I had less holidays. So anyway, I thought about it. And uh, so I engaged a solicitor. And the solicitor said, what he's doing here is constructive dismissal. So he was sent a letter to that effect which he didn't reply to. So then he got a second one. And in the end, he called me into the club and he said, look, you're just wasting your money with a solicitor. He said, uh, do you want redundancy? I said, no, I don't want redundancy. I want to go out there. So he said, uh, well, you've got a contract. I said, do you think I want a contract like that? He said, well, I, yeah, I can see your, your health insurance is important. I said, do you not think my pension is important to me? All right. Well, if I put that in, he said, well, what do you think? I said, well, you, you put those two things in and I'll come. So, so that's what happened. And uh, so that's how I landed up there. Anyway, within two months, he said to me, uh, we've got a problem. I said, why is that? He said, well, you're now working for Faroka. You're not working for Oxford United Football Club. You're working for Faroka, my company. He said, and we are not able to contribute into the Football League pension scheme. So I said, so, so where do we go from here? He said, well, you will have to go back working for Oxford United. I said, well, that'll suit me. And he said, we'll have to do that. And then, then we'll transfer money for your services, you know, um, that way. So I said, okay. So he said, then we'll, we'll pay into your pension. So I said, oh, that's lovely. I said, uh, so I should be back on my old contract. He said, yes. I said, oh, well, that's fine. I said, same hours. And, and, oh, yes, he said. So I landed up exactly what I wanted in the end. <laughs> but uh, it was never never happy for me. The club was on the pitch was going downhill, wasn't it? Dan, you know that. 
and uh, things were just getting worse and worse. So I was very fortunate. When I left school, I worked for a college sports ground. I was able to get the job at St John's as head groundsman, and uh, so I did a full circle. Really, started at college ground and finished at college. It was rather nice for me. It's a nice get out in the end. <laughs> but you see, when I finished there, you know, 17 years at Oxford United Grainsman Stadium Manager, the staff had a whip round and gave, bought me a television. And from the club and Mr. Kazam, I got a bottle of champagne. I think you're, you're a proud man. Um, it, it must have broke your heart to, to, to move away from your club. You, you said it, you know, you were there at Headington United. You went yeah, through yeah. rough and yeah. smooth. You, you had to go through periods of not getting paid, but to feel that low with the with 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 the situation that you you had to leave, it, it must have must have broken your heart. It broke my heart, and, and also really, it took me. I was offered the job at St John's. I went for an interview, and it took me the best part of a week before they rang me and said, "Are you accepting the job or not?" Because I was that undecided. And in the end, I said, "No, I'm going to go." And, and I mean, a lot of the people, players and the people I knew, they left the club anyway. And so it wasn't quite the same in any case. But, um, yes, it, it, you know, it was a terribly, terribly sad time. But uh, <clears throat> really, when I went to St John's, I wonder why I'd, I'd worried because I did enjoy doing the job there. And it was so easy compared with the constraints I was on at the, at the Kazam, you know, financially with getting stuff, fertilizer and the stuff I needed, you know. Um, we, we we hired some we had some frost sheets we bought some years before and we hired some more because it was particularly susceptible to frost up there and uh, we, we we rented these frost covers and I remember the company saying probably in the January, February time you know, your time's up with the covers do you want to extend the time and I said to Kazan Mr. Kazan, what, what are we going to do? And he, he said, uh, well, do we need them? When will the frost stop? I said, I don't know when the frost will stop. I said, we've got to give it March, into March. <clears throat> hmm, yeah, that's a few weeks away. Well, just um, tell them you can't get in touch with me at the moment and try and spin it out. And that's what did. <laughs> <coughs> so, <laughs> the... The, the, other, the other story I was going to tell you was about Nigel Jensen. He signed for the club, good player, Nigel. He was on, on a pretty good wage, I think. And he was, he was going out training one day with Mike Ford in the car. Ford, he told me this. And at the time, I had a, a lovely 944 Porsche and uh, with personalised plates. And as he was driving out, uh, Ford was driving out, Geno said, a nice, nice car, he said. What's up, the chairman's? He said, no, it's the groundsman. He said, do what? He said, how much is he on? If I'd have known that, I'd have asked for another thousand pounds a week. <laughs> well, yeah. Mick, what, what a place, unless you've got any more stories, because I, I was about to wrap it up there, but if there's if there's another one, I, I'm more than happy to open the floor <laughs> to you. There's, 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 a, there's a couple that... That um, when we played Chelsea in the Cup uh, at the Manor, it was in January and the pitch was in pretty good condition. And uh, the Chelsea sort of management were extremely impressed with it. 
And they even asked me if I would consider going and, and being their groundsman. And I said, no, I'm, I'm an Oxford through and through. I'm not, I didn't fancy driving down the M40. But what I actually done, I mean, the pitch was in good condition, don't get me wrong, but obviously the, the, you're going to get wear in the gold maze. And I was able to get hold of some green sand. It's sand that's impregnated with vegetable dye. And it's, it, it tones in with the grass and it looks green until it rains and it washes out. And of course, I'm not sure whether they knew that um, there was a bit of sand in the golf. <laughs> it worked anyway. It looked good on the television cameras. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And the, the other story that I was going to say was about Bobby McDonald. I spoke to him last week and uh, it, we were talking old times. And, and, and my wife said, uh, I remember Bobby one night when I woke up in the early hours in the morning, there was flashing lights outside my house and it was you sat in a police car. And he said, oh, yes, yeah. He said, I'd come out of Bogart's. He said, and uh, I wanted to stay at yours. He said, but I, I knew, well, I didn't know your address. So he said, I, I stopped the police car and I said, you wouldn't know where Mick Moore lives, the Oxford United groundsman. <laughs> and, he, and one of the chaps said, yeah, we do actually. He said, do, do you think you could, Give me a lift. So they said, yeah. So when he got to our house, he said, do you think you could put the lights on? <laughs> so we were laughing and he said, there's a bit of a, more of a twist in the story. I said, what? He said, well, I was a bit cheeky, he said. There was two policemen in the front. He said, I said to them, do you think I could sit in the front? And one got out and sat in the back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What a, what a way to end uh, what has been an a absolutely entertaining hour of stories. Uh, Mick, uh, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I hope you've enjoyed telling your stories as much as well, we've yeah, I mean, when, I, when I get an audience, when we're away, if somebody knows something about football or something, an older generation, I, I keep them entertaining my stories for a while, yeah. <laughs> I bet. Well, thanks again for coming on, and uh, yes, uh, I can't wait for everyone else to hear them as well. Thank you for listening to Behind the Badge. Stay across our social media platforms for our next podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at behind the underscore badge, or if you want to email us, it's behind the badge 1893 at gmail.com.